Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 26th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with today's weather. Today there will be fog in the morning and cloudy, with a high of 37 degrees. Tonight there will be low clouds and a low of 30 degrees. Saturday will be sun and areas of low clouds, with a high of 34 degrees. And now we turn to local and state news stories. Chamber preps for legislatures, pushing priorities. Siouxland Chamber to lobby in Des Moines and Pierre next month. Mason Doctor reports from Des Moines. The Siouxland Chamber of Commerce will have an audience next month at the seat of power of both Iowa and South Dakota, advocating for policy action and new ideas in matters like child care and tax policy, and pushing for the status quo in other affairs of the Republican-governed states. The Chamber's Des Moines Legislative Day is February 1st. The Dakota Valley Business Council's Pierre Legislative Days are February 6th through 7th. The Dakota Valley Business Council is affiliated with the Siouxland Chamber. Roughly 25 to 30 business leaders and local elected officials traditionally travel to Des Moines for the annual lobbying trip, where they will meet with Governor Kim Reynolds, Lieutenant Governor Adam Gregg, House Speaker Pat Grassley, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, and other legislative officials and department heads. The Pierre delegation, estimated at 17 people, will meet with Governor Christy Noem, Lieutenant Governor Larry Roden, Attorney General Marty Jackley, leaders in both houses of the legislature, and several state department heads and secretaries. Believe me, it'll be a good trip, said Barbara Sloniker, the chamber's executive vice president. In Des Moines, the Chamber will advocate for the status quo on a number of policies, maintaining tax increment funding, preservation of existing workforce training funds, sustaining current funding and service levels at Iowa's commercial service airports, protection of the state's right-to-work law, holding the state's environmental protections to a standard that's no more stringent than federal regulations, among others. The delegation's Pierre Policy priorities, including their status quo positions, are similar. The Dakota Valley Business Council's policy sheet for South Dakota is somewhat more stridently small government, noting their opposition to a state income tax, which South Dakota does not levy, their support of the personal property rights of South Dakota employers, and the right of employers to make their own operational decisions rather than being forced to follow federal and state mandates. The Chamber will take a more active lobbying posture in Des Moines on the child care shortage, which has been an obstacle for many working parents and thus a workforce bottleneck. There's staffing shortages. There's accessibility, Sloniker said. It's becoming not affordable to parents to send their child to a child care center. As of 2022, an Iowa family with the median household income and an infant in child care spent between 10 to 14% of their income on child care before taxes, according to Iowa Child Care Resource and Referral. Nationally, 7% is considered affordable child care. <clears throat> A state report published in November 2021 found that 23% of Iowans and nearly 35% of rural Iowans lived in a child care desert, which is an area with a shortage of licensed child care providers. That same report, 
which was a product of Reynolds' state task force on child care, said the state's average monthly cost for child care, more than $1,000, was higher than what the average Iowa family paid for housing at the time. A more recent report, released last summer by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, found that 14% of Iowa children ages 5 and under had a family member who'd quit, changed, or refused a job due to childcare issues in 2020 and 2021. Sloniker said the chamber delegation at times doesn't lobby strictly in favor of one policy proposal. Frequently, as is the case with childcare, it's a give and take a matter of speaking with lawmakers and department heads and listening to what they have to say, offering feedback and brainstorming. We don't necessarily always have a specific do this ask, Sloniker said. What kinds of things are they proposing to help address the childcare shortage situation? Are there ways to be creative about encouraging employers to offer childcare, she added. Some of Iowa's tax policies, the chamber says in its policy position sheet, also need change, though they lauded revisions the state made to its tax code in 2022, the state's flat 3.9% personal income tax, and the elimination of taxes on retirement income were described as historic achievements. That said, the chamber noted its target income tax rate is 0%. The state's unemployment insurance tax system, the chamber position sheet says, puts Iowa business at a competitive disadvantage, while Iowa's property tax code is described as overly complex and burdensome. The Journal Des Moines Bureau's Aaron Murphy contributed reporting. Proposal would pull gender identity protections, gender identity added to Iowa Civil Rights Act in 07. Aaron Murphy reports from Des Moines. The Iowa Civil Rights Act would be changed by removing gender identity as a protected class and by adding gender dysphoria to disabilities covered by the act, under legislation that will be considered by state lawmakers next week at the Iowa Capitol. Created in 1965, the Iowa Civil Rights Act prevents discrimination based on identifying characteristics like age, race, color, religion, national origin, or disability. The act was amended in 2007 to add sexual orientation and gender identity. A bill introduced by Iowa State lawmaker Jeff Shipley, a Republican from Birmingham, would remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Shipley's bill would instead add to the act's covered disabilities gender dysphoria, which the American Psychiatric Association defines as psychological distress that results when an individual has a gender identity that is different from their sex at birth. (laughs) Advocates for transgender people express their vehement opposition to the proposal. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, it's going to hurt a lot of people, said Keenan Crow with the LGBTQ advocacy organization One Iowa. The proposed bill, House File 2082, would need to move through the Iowa House Judiciary Committee, which is chaired by Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison. A 2020 proposal simply to remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act did not advance through Holt's committee that year. This time, Holt told the Des Moines Register that he wants to hear the conversation around the new proposal from Shipley, calling it an interesting concept. (laughs) I just want to hear a conversation about it. I want to have a subcommittee hearing and hear a conversation about it, Holt 
told the register. I still have concerns about this, but I at least want to have the conversation and see where it goes. The subcommittee hearing, the first step in Iowa's state lawmaking process, is scheduled for Wednesday at the Iowa Capitol. Iowa Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids who will represent his party on the subcommittee's legislative panel, said the proposal is terrible for multiple reasons, including the way the bill removes gender identity from the act's protections but includes gender dysphoria among protected disabilities. First off, it's insulting, Sheet said, to characterize people who are non-binary and transgender as having a mental illness, essentially, which is what it does, to say that they're disabled mentally for being themselves, I think is just wrong. Sheets and Crow said the proposal likely would not provide the same legal protections to transgender Iowans as the current Civil Rights Act. Crow noted that not all transgender people are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Being transgender and having gender dysphoria are two separate things. There are a decent amount of trans people that have gender dysphoria, and a decent amount of trans people who don't have gender dysphoria, Crow said. So you're going to leave out that entire group of people who has no need for a diagnosis. Representative Jennifer Conferst, the leader of the minority party Democrats in the Iowa House, called the proposal hateful unnecessary, and said there is a huge risk for unintended consequence. She said amending the Iowa Civil Rights Act in this way would be the exact opposite of the spirit of who Iowans are and what Iowans want. State House Republicans in the past two legislative sessions have passed a series of new laws impacting transgender and other LGBTQ Iowans, including a ban on gender transition treatments and surgeries for minors, a ban on the teaching of gender identity or sexual orientation through sixth grade, a ban on transgender students using K-12 school bathrooms that align with their gender identity by requiring students to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender at birth, and a ban on transgender girls competing in girls' sports. Refusing treatment on moral grounds. GOP bill allows Iowa doctors' pharmacies to say no. Kayla McCullough reports from Des Moines. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a bill on Wednesday that would allow health care providers, facilities, and insurance companies to refuse medical care based on moral objections. Under Senate Study Bill 3006, medical providers would have the right to not participate in any service that is contrary to their moral beliefs. Medical institutions, hospitals, clinics, pharmacies, or medical schools would also be allowed to opt out of performing and paying for procedures that violate their conscience, and insurance companies would not be required to pay for services or medications that they have an objection of conscience to. Providers and facilities would still have an obligation to provide emergency medical treatment to all patients. Providers who refuse medical service based on conscientious objection would be shielded from liability for damages that arose from the objection. Advocates of the bill, including conservative Iowa religious organizations, say it would protect doctors from being pressured to perform procedures they have a religious or moral objection to. Tom Chapman, executive director of the Iowa Catholic Conference, said providers should have a right to exercise their conscience when dealing with patients. He pointed to existing protections for doctors who refuse to perform abortions and said the bill is an extension of that policy. 
No medical practitioner should be forced to participate in a procedure or medication to which he or she has an objection of conscience or violate their oath to do no harm, he said. Opponents, though, said the bill could endanger patients and elevates the interest of providers over the health and needs of patients. They said the effects would be particularly dire in Iowa, where rural populations face a severe lack of access to quality health care. Iowa is ranked among the worst states in the nation for access to maternal health care. I have not once seen a health care worker forced to do something they don't want to do, said Francesca Turner, an OB-GYN at Broadlawns Medical Center in Des Moines. Pharmacists refusing prescriptions and doctors denying care, especially in rural Iowa, will only exacerbate the already dire health care crisis in our state. A growing number of states have adopted similar laws, sometimes called medical refusal bills. Lawmakers in Florida and Montana both passed similar laws last year. Iowa lawmakers have also considered similar provisions in past years, but they have not been signed into law. Maisie Stilwell, a lobbyist for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa, said the proposed bill is more extreme than what has been put forward in the past and mirrors what other states have put in place. There is no original thought in this bill, she told lawmakers on Wednesday. What we have seen is that this is a culmination of all of these extreme provisions that we've seen shopped across the country all put into one bill. Existing state law already allows doctors to refuse to perform abortions based on their religious belief or moral convictions. The bill would add to those protections and require providers to offer prior written consent before being asked to perform or assist in an abortion. Medical institutions and practitioners would be protected from discrimination based on their refusal. Practitioners could not be denied privileges or public benefits based on their decision to opt out. Providers would receive whistleblower protections from retaliations if they report a facility for violating the conscience objection law. The bill would also protect doctors and other providers from being punished or having their license revoked by a state entity based on First Amendment protected speech unless that speech directly harmed a patient. The bill was advanced by a three-person Senate subcommittee on Wednesday, Republican Senators Jason Schultz of Schleswig and Jeff Taylor of Sioux Center voted to advance the bill, while Democratic Senator Janet Peterson of Des Moines voted against it. Taylor said he had heard from medical students in past years who were concerned they would be pressured to perform procedures during their training they have a moral objection to. He invoked the Hippocratic Oath and said the bill would protect providers who do not want to perform procedures they think would harm patients. The whole idea of first do no harm, we don't always agree on what harm is, he said. Harm versus health, two medical professionals who have been well educated and have lots of years of experience may see those in diametrically opposed ways. Peterson said she had not heard from any physician who said they had been pressured to perform a procedure against their moral beliefs. She said the bill would further strain health care for women. I think this bill is trying to fix something that is not broken, she said. I have yet to see a single example come forward. I also have an extreme level of concern about the number of bills that we continue to see going after Iowa's access to health care. 
After passing the subcommittee, the bill is now eligible for a vote in the full Senate Judiciary Committee. Driver dies after high-speed pursuit on Gordon Drive. Chase began near Lawton, went over 100 miles per hour. Nick Hytrek reports from Sioux City. A high-speed chase that began near Lawton, Iowa, ended with the death of the driver in a rollover crash Wednesday on Gordon Drive in Sioux City. Melissa Theed, 40, of Churden, Iowa, was transported to Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center and was pronounced dead shortly after the crash, which occurred in the westbound lanes of Gordon Drive near the intersection with Spalding Street at 4.32 p.m. Iowa State Patrol Sergeant Kyle Hack said a trooper had observed the driver of the red PT Cruiser speeding on U.S. Highway 20, just west of Lawton, and initiated a traffic stop. He turned his lights on and the driver took off, Hack said. The trooper pursued the vehicle west on U.S. 20, and the chase exceeded speeds of 100 miles per hour for seven miles before entering Sioux City. A second trooper joined in just before the vehicle entered the city and proceeded on Gordon Drive, Hack said. Feed continued to drive erratically and at high rates of speed, and the state patrol called off the pursuit. Feed's vehicle then struck the back of a Dodge Ram pickup truck and rolled, striking another vehicle before coming to rest on its passenger side in the westbound lanes in front of Mullen Awning and Siding at 4001 Gordon Drive. Feed was not wearing a seatbelt and did not have any passengers. The driver of the pickup, Hector Alvarez Galazzo, 29, of Sioux City, was transported to Unity Point St. Luke's with minor injuries. The driver of the third vehicle was not injured, according to a State Patrol accident report. Westbound Gordon Drive was closed while troopers investigated the accident scene. A tire, wheel, muffler, and large and small pieces of debris from the crashed vehicle were scattered in the driving lanes and in the snow along the street. Feed's vehicle was totaled, and the other two vehicles had disabling damage. And now here are some national and world news stories. In the U.S. economy, spending drives growth. Consumers helped push strong 3.3% increase in final quarter of 2023. Paul Weisman reports from Washington. The nation's economy grew at an unexpectedly brisk 3.3% annual pace from October through December, as Americans showed a continued willingness to spend freely despite high interest rates and price levels that frustrate many households. Thursday's report from the Commerce Department said the gross domestic product, the economy's output of goods and services, decelerated from its sizzling 4.9% growth rate the previous quarter. Still, the latest figures reflected the surprising durability of the world's largest economy, which U.S. voters are assessing ahead of the November elections. The latest data marked the sixth straight quarter in which GDP has grown at an annual pace of 2% or more. Consumers, who account for about 70% of the economy, drove the growth. Their spending expanded at a 2.8% annual rate. The GDP report also showed that despite the robust pace of growth in the October-December quarter, inflationary measures continued to ease. Consumer prices rose at a 1.7% annual rate, down from 2.6% in the third quarter. Excluding volatile food and energy prices, so-called core inflation came in at a 2% annual rate.
Those inflation numbers could reassure the Federal Reserve's policymakers, who already suggested they expect to cut their benchmark interest rate three times in 2024, reversing their 2022-23 policy of aggressively raising rates to fight inflation. Some economists think the Fed could begin cutting rates as early as May. Nathan Sheets, global chief economist at Citi, said that recent experience suggests that economic growth can remain solid even as inflation cools. It underscores for the Fed that they don't have to be in a hurry to ease borrowing rates to aid the economy, said Sheets, who thinks the first rate cut will occur in June. After an extended period of gloom, Americans are starting to feel somewhat better about inflation and the economy, a trend that could sustain consumer spending, fuel economic growth, and potentially affect voters' decisions this fall. A measure of consumer sentiment by the University of Michigan, for example, jumped in the past two months by the most since 1991. There is growing optimism that the Fed is on track to deliver a rare, soft landing, keeping borrowing rates high enough to cool growth, hiring, and inflation, yet not so much as to send the economy into a tailspin. Inflation touched a four-decade high in 2022, but has since edged steadily lower without the layoffs most economists thought would be necessary. In the Middle East, officials say Israeli fire kills 20. Authorities say crowd was waiting to receive humanitarian aid. From Rafah, Gaza Strip. Gaza's health ministry and witnesses said Israeli troops opened fire as a crowd of Palestinians gathered for humanitarian aid in Gaza City on Thursday, killing at least 20 and wounding dozens. The Israeli military said it is looking into the reports. The Associated Press could not independently confirm the details of what happened. Witnesses and health officials said the shooting took place at a roundabout on Gaza City's southern edge, where a large crowd, where a large crowd gathered for distribution of food. Footage posted online and confirmed to have taken on, to have been taken on the main road near the roundabout showed hundreds of people fleeing, some carrying boxes of aid, as fire rang out in the background. Men loaded wounded Palestinians onto horse and donkey carts that took off charging down the avenue. At Shifa Hospital, where casualties were treated, Mohammed al-Riafi lay on the floor, his bloodied leg bandaged, as medics worked on other wounded people around them. He said Israeli troops fired into the crowd. We were going to get flour. Young people were martyred and other young people were injured, he said. Health Ministry spokesperson Ashraf al-Kidra said 20 people were killed and 150 others wounded by the shooting. Israeli troops and tanks pushed into Gaza City shortly after the ground invasion began in October. The military claims it largely dismantled Hamas in northern Gaza, but still faces pockets of resistance. Large swaths of Gaza City and surrounding areas were reduced to rubble by Israeli bombardment. The UN has said it has been struggling to deliver aid to the north amid Israeli restrictions and continued fighting. Israel launched its offensive in Gaza vowing to destroy Hamas after the October 7th cross-border attack in which about 1,200 people died. Militants abducted about 250 others. One of the largest air and ground campaigns in recent history, the Israeli offensive has killed more than 25,900 Palestinians, according to Gaza's health ministry. 
Its count does not differentiate between civilians and combatants, but the ministry says most of the dead are women and minors. It says the real toll is higher because many casualties were buried under the rubble or are in areas where medics can't reach them. Trump testifies briefly in New York defamation trial. Jury will decide how much he owes Ryder after calling her a liar. From New York, former President Donald Trump was on and off the witness stand at a jury trial Thursday in less than three minutes, but not before breaking a judge's rules on what he could say by claiming that a writer's sexual assault allegations were a false accusation, and he wanted to defend himself and the presidency. Judge Louis A. Kaplan swiftly instructed jurors to disregard those remarks from Trump. Kaplan placed limits on Trump's testimony when the judge decided prior to the trial that a previous jury's finding that Trump sexually abused advice columnist E. Jean Carroll in spring of 1996 in the dressing room of a luxury Manhattan department store and defamed her with remarks in 2022 must be accepted by the new jury. That jury awarded Carroll $5 million at a Manhattan trial Trump did not attend. Kaplan instructed this jury to consider only what additional damages, if any, Trump must pay Carol. Her lawyer requested $10 million in compensatory damages. Carol claims Trump ruined her reputation after she accused him for the first time publicly in a memoir of sexually abusing her in spring 1996 in a Bergdorf Goodman store. Ukraine aid, border deal faces potential collapse. Trump ramps up his criticism of agreement in the works for weeks. Washington. A bipartisan Senate deal to pair border enforcement measures and Ukraine aid faced potential collapse Thursday, as Senate Republicans grew increasingly wary of an election year compromise that Donald Trump, the likely Republican presidential nominee, opposes. Senate negotiators have been striving for weeks for a compromise on border and immigration policy meant to tamp down the number of migrants who come to the U.S. border with Mexico. President Joe Biden and Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell have worked for months to broker the deal in hopes of cajoling Congress to approve wartime aid for Ukraine to fend off Russia's invasion. Trump ramped up his criticism on his social media platform Thursday. He said the Senate is better off not making a deal, even if it means the country will close up for a while. He did not propose alternatives. In a private Republican meeting Wednesday, McConnell acknowledged Trump's opposition and discussed other options, including separating Ukraine and the border, according to two people who spoke anonymously. Russia-Ukraine trade blame for downed planes. Russia and Ukraine continued to trade accusations Thursday over the crash of a military transport plane that Moscow said was shot down by Kyiv's forces while carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war for an exchange. Investigators reportedly found the flight recorders a day after Wednesday's crash, but there was little hope the circumstances would be clarified, as both sides often use accusations to sway public opinion. Russia opened a criminal probe Thursday on charges that the crash was a terrorist act. Ukraine implied the plane may have posed a threat and cast doubt that POWs were aboard. Neither side offered evidence for the claims. President Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukraine would push for an international investigation. 
Ukrainian officials confirmed a prisoner exchange was due Wednesday, but said it was called off, noting Moscow did not ask for any airspace to be kept safe as it has in past swaps. Antitrust Regulators Probe AI Partnerships U.S. antitrust enforcers open an investigation into the relationships between leading artificial intelligence startups and the tech giants that invested billions of dollars into them. The action targets Amazon, Google, and Microsoft and their sway over the generative AI boom that's fueled demand for chatbots such as ChatGPT and other AI tools. We're scrutinizing whether these ties enable dominant firms to exert undue influence or gain privileged access in ways that could undermine fair competition, Lena Khan, U.S. Federal Trade Commission chair, said Thursday at an AI forum. The FTC said Thursday it issued compulsory orders to five companies, cloud providers Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, and AI startups Anthropic and OpenAI to provide information regarding investments and partnerships. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 26th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. In these national and world news briefs, Contempt. Trump White House official Peter Navarro convicted of contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with a congressional investigation into the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol was sentenced Thursday to four months behind bars. Musk, a panel of 17 federal appeals court judges in New Orleans, held a hearing Thursday and will decide whether a 2018 Twitter post by Tesla CEO Elon Musk unlawfully threatened Tesla employees with the loss of stock options if they unionized. Transgender Care A group of transgender veterans filed a lawsuit Thursday seeking to force the Department of Veteran Affairs to provide and pay for gender-affirming surgeries. Georgia Lawyers for former President Donald Trump said Thursday that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis should be removed from the Georgia election interference case, claiming she inappropriately injected race into the case and stoked racial animus, in response to allegations of misconduct against her. Iraq. The United States and Iraq soon will begin talks to wind down the mission of a U.S.-led military coalition formed to fight the Islamic State group in Iraq. Both governments said Thursday. And finally, hate crime. A federal court will hear appeals March 27th of three white men convicted of hate crimes for chasing and killing Ahmad Arbery, 25, in a Georgia neighborhood in 2020. His killing sparked national outcry. And now we turn to sports stories starting with the NBA. Timberwolves hang on to top nets in Brooklyn. From New York. Carl Anthony Towns scored 27 points, Anthony Edwards added 24, and the Minnesota Timberwolves held on for a 96-94 win over the Brooklyn Nets on Thursday night. Minnesota led by as many as 17 points in the third quarter and was still ahead by 10 midway through the fourth quarter. An 8-0 Nets run, capped by McCall Bridges' short jumper with 3.34 left, made it 91-89. Cam Thomas's free throws with 111 left tied the game 94-94. But Rudy Gobert, 
put down an alley-oop from Towns with 58 seconds remaining to put the Timberwolves back in front for good. Gobert finished with 10 points and 13 rebounds, while Mike Conley also scored 10. Towns added 10 rebounds. Knicks 122, Nuggets 84. O.G. Anunoby scored 26 points, Jalen Brunson added 21, and host New York handed Denver its worst loss of the season. Quentin Grimes had 19 points, Julius Randle 17, and Dante DiVincenzo 16 for the Knicks, who have won 5 straight and 11 of 13 since Anunoby was acquired from Toronto. Celtics 143, Heat 110. Jason Tatum scored 26 points. Kristaps Porzingis had 19 before spraining his left ankle, and visiting Boston made 22 three-pointers on the way to a rout of reeling Miami. Jalen Brown scored 18 points. Drew Holiday had 17, and Derek White 15 for the Celtics. They are 2-0 this season against the team that beat them in last season's Eastern Conference Finals. Pacers 134, 76ers 122. Indiana newcomer Pascal Siakam had 26 points, 13 rebounds, and 10 assists for his first triple-double since 2022, leading the host Pacers to a victory over Philadelphia. Jazz 123, Wizards 108. Laurie Markkanen scored 29 points, and Utah beat host Washington, spoiling Brian Keefe's debut as interim coach after Wes Unsell Jr. was moved from the Wizards' front office. Kings 134, Warriors 133. Harrison Barnes had 39 points with back-to-back baskets in crunch time as Sacramento held off host Golden State. Lakers 141, Bulls 132. LeBron James had 25 points and 12 assists, and host Los Angeles beat Chicago. D'Angelo Russell hit eight three-pointers and scored 29 points for the Lakers. In other NBA news, League unveils its all-star starters. LeBron James joined yet another exclusive club, and he'll have plenty of familiar faces alongside him at this season's NBA All-Star Game. James is now an all-star and an all-star starter for the 20th time, with the league unveiling the results of this season's starter balloting on Thursday night. James is the first 20-time all-star in NBA history. This year's game is February 18th in Indianapolis. Joining James in the Western Conference starting lineup, Phoenix's Kevin Durant, Denver's Nikola Jokic, Dallas's Luka Doncic, and Oklahoma City's Shai Gilgeous-Alexander. In the Eastern Conference, Milwaukee's Giannis Antetokounmpo will be joined by Boston's Jason Tatum and Philadelphia's Joel Embiid in the front court. The East Guards are Indiana's Tyrese Halliburton, who will be a starter on his home floor, and Milwaukee's Damian Lillard. Wizards move coach Unseld to front office. From Washington, Wes Unseld Jr. is out as coach of the Washington Wizards midway through his third season with the team, which has the second fewest wins in the NBA. President Michael Winger announced Thursday that Unseld would be transitioning to a front office advisory role. Assistant Brian Keefe was promoted as the interim replacement. Mavericks, 
Dallas superstar Luka Doncic was responsible for a Suns fan being ejected in the third quarter Wednesday in Phoenix after he yelled that Doncic was tired and needed to get on a treadmill. And the NBA stat of the day, 11. Warriors reserve forward Jonathan Kamunga made all 11 of his shots on the way to 25 points in Wednesday's 134-112 win over Atlanta, matching Hall of Famer Chris Mullins' franchise record for most shots made without a miss. And in NHL hockey, Lyon stops 29 as Wings blank flyers from Detroit. Alex Lyon defeated one of his former teams for the second time in eight days Thursday, and the Detroit Red Wings were back to playing a tight defensive game. Lyon made 29 saves for his second shutout of the season, and third of his career in a 3-0 victory over the Philadelphia Flyers. The Red Wings rebounded from Tuesday's 5-4 loss to Dallas, improving from 8-2-1 this month. Pardon me, 8-2-1 this month. The efficient Red Wings needed only eight shots to score three goals in the second period, from Dylan Larkin, Moritz Sater, and Andrew Kopp, and it didn't matter that the Flyers outshot them 29-17. Lyon, who beat his former Florida team last week, improved to 12-6-1. Oilers 3, Blackhawks nothing. Edmonton stretched its winning streak to 15 games, and Chicago's road losing streak to 19, behind two goals from Connor McDavid and 27 saves from Calvin Picard. Leon Dreisselt had three assists for the Oilers, who tied the 1981-82 New York Islanders and 2012-13 Pittsburgh Penguins for the third longest winning streak in NHL history. Hurricanes 3, Devils 2. Sebastian Ajo and Tuvo Teravainen each had a goal and an assist to lead Carolina past visiting New Jersey. New Jersey coach Lindy Ruff was struck in the face by a puck during the second period. He stayed behind the bench initially but didn't come out for the third period. Associate coach Travis Green ran the team. Lightning 6, Coyotes 3. Nikita Kucherov had a goal and two assists to retake the NHL lead in points, and Steven Stamkos recorded his 1100th career point with a power play goal as Tampa Bay beat visiting Arizona. Kucherov increased his season point total to 83 and moved ahead of Colorado's Nate McKinnon at 82. <clears throat> Ruins 3, Senators 2 in overtime. Brad Marchand scored 1 minute 48 seconds into overtime to give Boston a victory in Ottawa. Jeremy Swayman made 35 saves as the Bruins recovered after blowing a 2-0 lead. Canadiens 4, Islanders 3. Sean Monaghan scored his second goal of the game with 2 minutes and 12 seconds remaining, lifting the Canadiens to a victory and spoiling New York coach Patrick Roy's Return to Montreal. Predators 3, Wild 2. Alexandre Carrier and Philip Forsberg scored 35 seconds apart to open a three-goal third period. Yus Saros made 22 saves and Nashville beat Minnesota in St. Paul. Stars 4, Ducks 3 in overtime. 
Thomas Harley scored 38 seconds into overtime to give Dallas a home victory over Anaheim. Miro Heiskanen tied it midway through the third period in his return to the Dallas lineup after missing 10 games with a lower body injury. And finally, Blue Jackets 5, Flames 2. Alexandre Texier's short-handed goal midway through the second period broke a 2-2 tie in Columbus's road win over Calgary. In other NHL news, Kraken returned to full strength in net. There was no immediate change on the Seattle Kraken net-minding front Wednesday night, despite it being the first time in nearly seven weeks Philip Grubauer returned to a game in uniform. Grubauer wound up wearing his Kraken uniform on the bench, taking a backseat to goalie Joey Dacord in his 34-say performance in a 6-2 pardon me, 6-2 home win over the Chicago Blackhawks. It was the 17th start for Dacord in the Kraken's last 19 games, a workload of 89% that's unheard of and likely unsustainable within a modern NHL in which goalie tandems are an increasing trend born out of physical necessity. What remains to be seen is how much of a workload Decord can withstand and whether Kraken coach Dave Haxtell will allow him to continue his throwback ways. Avalanche Nate McKinnon, who scored four goals in Wednesday's victory over the Washington Capitals, ran his home points streak to 24 to break a tie with Joe Sackick for the franchise record. Devils. New Jersey claimed right-handed defenseman Nick DeSimone off waivers from the Calgary Flames to bolster its blue line depth as several players remain missing. In a corresponding move, the Devils placed forward Jack Hughes on their growing injured reserve list. And the stat of the day in the NHL? 19. The Chicago Blackhawks lost their 19th straight road game Thursday night in Edmonton, the fourth longest single-season streak in NHL history, breaking a tie with Pittsburgh from 82-83, to 83, Quebec from 89-90, to 90, and San Jose from 92-93. to 93. The third longest is 24 by the 73-74 California Golden Seals. In tennis, Sabalenka won win from a repeat. Defending champ defeats Golf, faces first-time finalist Zheng. John Pai reports from Melbourne, Australia. Arinya Sabalenka avenged a U.S. Open final loss to Coco Golf and will take a 13-match Australian Open winning streak into Saturday's championship decider against first-time finalist Zheng Kinwen. Defending champion Sabalenka attacked Galf's serve with her powerful returns and unloaded 33 winners in the 7-6-2 and 6-4 semifinal victory on Thursday night. Number 12-seeded Zheng had a 6-4-6-4 win over number 93-ranked Diana Yastremska ending the Ukrainian player's bid to become the second qualifier to reach a Grand Slam final in the Open era after 2021 U.S. Open champion Emma Raducanu. Zheng lost in the U.S. Open quarterfinals to Sabalenka last year in her best previous run at a major. She's into the final a decade after Chinese star Li Na won the Australian title. 
It feels unbelievable. I am super excited to have such a great performance today and arrive in the final, said Zheng, who hasn't faced a player ranked in the top 50 in six rounds. Taking on number two Sabalenka will be a big step up for the 21-year-old Zheng, who is playing in a major for the ninth time. Sabalenka said she was ready for anything against Gauff and happy to have some support after facing the 19-year-old American in New York last September. Sabalenka was back in the semis for the fifth straight major, a run that started here in Australia last year in her Grand Slam breakthrough. She is the first to reach consecutive finals here since Williams in 2015, 16, and 17. Gauff was on a 12-match winning streak in majors and attempting to be the first player since Naomi Osaka in 2020-21 through 21 to win the U.S. Open and Australian Open back-to-back. She'd worked out how to beat Sabalenka at the U.S. Open to win her first majors title but didn't have the answers this time against the only player in the Final Four with semifinal experience in Australia. Sabalenka led 5-2 and two in the first set and missed a set point as Gauff held firm and went on a four-game roll to take a 6-5 lead. Gauff also couldn't serve it out, with Sabalenka's booming returns continuing to cause her trouble. In the tiebreaker, Sabalenka raced to 5 to one. Chance of Coco, Coco, went up around Rod Laver Arena, but they didn't help Galf. Almost a half hour after her first set point, Sabalenka got five more. She clinched on the second of those with a big serve out wide. The second set was tight until Sabalenka got a service break in the ninth game. She missed her first match point, but an ace down the middle earned a second match point and Sabalenka clinched it after 1 hour, 42 minutes. Gauff entered the Australian Open, needing 6 wins to reach 50 in Grand Slams before turning 20. She has 49. That she didn't win a second major as a teenager wasn't a huge concern. I tend to be hard on myself, so I feel like today was dang, she said, but I think looking back overall at this stage of my life, it was a successful time. In golf... If you beat him, join him. Dunlap leaves Alabama for a PGA Tour after breakthrough victory. John Zanor reports. Alabama sophomore Nick Dunlap is turning pro after becoming the first amateur in 33 years to win on the PGA Tour. Dunlap announced his decision Thursday in a campus news conference, four days after the reigning U.S. amateur champion won the American Express. He secured the one-shot victory with a six-foot par putt on the final hole. I truly do have the best team, and I'm very grateful to say that, Dunlap said. I mean that wholeheartedly. But at this time, I do want to announce that I am turning professional. I'm accepting my PGA Tour membership. The 20-year-old will make his professional debut at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am on February 1st. With family... Alabama golf coach Jay Sewell and teammates looking on, Dunlap wiped away tears while thanking those close to him. Gosh dang, I didn't think I was going to cry, he said. Dunlap had withdrawn from the Farmers Insurance Open at Torrey Pines to consider his options. South African Christian Bezui Denhout 
runner-up at the American Express, collected the $1.5 million check, not Dunlop. Thanks to his victory, Dunlop has a PGA Tour card through 2026. He will be eligible for seven $20 million signature events this year, along with three majors, and still a chance to play the British Open. It's a week today that the first round started, and a week ago if you had told me that I had the opportunity to live out my dream as a 20-year-old, it's pretty surreal, said Dunlop, who plans to continue living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But it's also scary. There's a lot of changes. Dunlap had earned a spot in the Masters, U.S. Open, and British Open after winning the U.S. Amateur last summer. Despite turning pro, he can still play in the U.S. Open since the USGA no longer requires the U.S. Amateur Champion to stay amateur. His victory Sunday gets him in the Masters and PGA Championship. He will have to earn a spot in the British Open. Dunlap said he informed his Alabama teammates of his decision on Tuesday. I've known him since he was 10 years old, when he came to golf camp, Sewell said. I've known his dream, and I'm honored that he gave us the opportunity to coach him. And from the Farmers Insurance Open, Stefan Jaeger of Germany made a 35-foot eagle putt on his final hole for an 8-under 64 and a one-shot lead over Nikolai Hoshgard of Denmark after Thursday's second round of the Farmers Insurance Open at Torrey Pines. Jaeger was at 12-under halfway through the tournament on the San Diego Blufftop layout overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Hoshgard shot a bogey-free 66 on the north course and was at 11-under. Thomas Detry of Belgium and Mathieu Pavon of France were 10-under after playing the south course. And finally, these stories from the NFL. One Final Four quarterback, not like the others. Joe Theismann won one Super Bowl and played in a second with Washington after entering the NFL as a fourth-round draft pick with another franchise. He starred for a coach, Joe Gibbs, whose path to the Hall of Fame featured three championships with three starting quarterbacks, including one selected in the sixth round, Mark Ripien and one who was chosen in the first round, but wound up taking a detour to the USFL before reaching the sport's pinnacle, Doug Williams. So, perhaps Theismann's view is shaded by all of that personal experience. He does not consider it vital for a team to find its quarterback early in the draft, even if recent evidence shows that conference title game participants most often do employ first-rounders at the sport's most important position, a trend reflected in Sunday's matchups. Patrick Mahomes' Chiefs at Lamar Jackson's Ravens in the AFC and Jared Goff's Lions at Brock Purdy's 49ers in the NFC. Three out of four ain't bad. I definitely don't believe that being a number one pick is the key to getting to a championship game. It's still a team game, Theismann said. Nothing is certain when it comes to talent evaluation, fulfilling potential shown in college or blossoming in the pros. But it clearly can be a sign of things to come when a quarterback goes at or near the top of a draft, which is why USC's Caleb Williams, UNC's Drake May, and LSU's Jaden Daniels are expected to hear their names called early in April. So sure, Purdy famously earned 
the Mr. Irrelevant moniker by being the 262nd and last choice in the 2022 draft. It is now said to appear in a second NFC Championship game in two NFL seasons. But otherwise, a trio of high picks will help determine which two teams head to the Super Bowl in Las Vegas on February 11th. The only newcomer to this round among the quartet is Jackson, who becomes the 30th quarterback to start a conference title game in the last 15 seasons. Take a look at that group of 30, and the pattern is obvious. 20 were first-rounders, including Goff at number one overall to the Los Angeles Rams in 2016, Mahomes at number 10 in 2017, and Jackson at number 32 in 2018. Five went in the second round, two in the third, one in the sixth, Tom Brady, and one, Purdy, in the seventh. Only one of the 30 was undrafted. Case Keenum, whose Minnesota Vikings fell one game short of Super Sunday 2017 season. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal on this Friday, January 26th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. With half a dozen measles outbreaks currently underway in the U.S., as well as several serious international outbreaks, the news on measles vaccine from Denmark is important. Researchers conducted a nationwide study that included everyone born between 1999 and 2010. With more than 650,000 children in that group, they had more than 5 million person years of follow-up. The Danish health system keeps excellent records on all of its citizens, including the children. Consequently, the scientists are confident that the 6,517 children diagnosed with autism during the study period are all the children who developed this condition. Children who did not receive the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or MMR, were equally likely as vaccinated children to develop autism. The investigators conclude... The study strongly supports that MMR vaccination does not increase the risk for autism, does not trigger autism in susceptible children, and is not associated with clustering of autism cases after vaccination. The Food and Drug Administration has just approved a completely new type of antidepressant. The nasal spray, called esketamine, is expected to help people who have not responded to standard antidepressants. It will be marketed under the brand name Spravato. This drug is chemically related to the injectable anesthetic ketamine that's been on the market since 1970 and is available generically. Although esketamine is administered as a nasal spray, people will not be permitted to purchase it for home use. They will need to use Spravato under medical supervision at a clinic or doctor's office. Some experts have challenged the FDA's approval process for esketamine. While two clinical trials demonstrated some benefit, two others did not show that esketamine is better than placebo. Side effects of this novel antidepressant include nausea, dizziness, headache, and a feeling of dissociation. FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb unexpectedly announced his departure from the agency this week. 
Experts were puzzled by his announcement since he has received high marks from the administration, industry, and even some consumer groups. Dr. Gottlieb has raised questions about teen vaping and has been an outspoken critic of pharmacy chains that sell tobacco products to minors. Some commentators speculate that these stances might be related to his abrupt departure. His explanation for the sudden departure is that he wants to spend more time with his wife and young children. Dr. Gottlieb is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Another week, another drug recall. Many lots of ARB blood pressure drugs, including Losartan, Valsartan, and Herbisartan, have been recalled over the past eight months. These medicines were contaminated with potential carcinogens known as NDMA and NDEA. Now, Hetero Labs has recalled 87 lots and Tarrant Pharmaceuticals Limited is recalling 100 lots of Losartan tablets. These pills contain an entirely new contaminant just identified as NMBA. It, too, is a suspected carcinogen. All three of these nitrosamine contaminants are apparently created as a result of the manufacturing process. FDA Commissioner Gottlieb stated, we're making important strides at understanding how these impurities form, and we're continuing to examine if nitrosamine impurities may also arise during the manufacture of other ARB drug products. The FDA is committed to implementing measures to prevent the formation of these impurities during drug manufacturing processes in the future. Cocoa flavonoids may have some benefit for people with multiple sclerosis, according to a small study. Previous research showed that dark chocolate rich in cocoa compounds might improve symptoms of chronic fatigue. The investigators recruited 40 people with relapsing remitting MS to drink cocoa every day for six weeks. 19 of them got high flavonoid cocoa, while 21 drank low flavonoid cocoa. At the end of the study, those on the high flavonoid cocoa had slightly less fatigue and could walk somewhat farther in six minutes than they had at the outset. They also reported less pain. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. 